if you have a pulse, which should be most of you, um, it is probably no secret to you that we live in an age of division. Right? We are divided over everything that you could possibly be divided about. Right? There's division over politics. There's division over social justice issues. Uh, we're not too far from, removed from division over masks and vaccines. Um, it's like, I feel like we're far enough away where I can make jokes about that now. Maybe I can't. I don't know. We'll find, we'll find out by what emails I get this week. Um, <laughs> The newest source of division is like we have strong opinions on a pop star who happens to be dating a football player. Okay, um, we find whatever issue we can, and we're going to form hard opinions on that thing. Okay, um, but as divisive as an age as we kind of live in, divided of an age as we kind of live in right now, here's here's what history would tell us: is that um, very few, if any of our sort of contemporary, modern issues that we are divided over um, are more hostile than the separation between Jews and Gentiles as recorded uh, during the, the time period that the Bible sort of records. Okay? So, for example, according to historical records, uh, and, and my, by historical records, not the Internet, okay, According to historical records, um, there were some Jews that believed Gentiles were created for the sole purpose of fueling the fires of hell. Right? Uh, along the same lines, it was not lawful for a Jew to assist a Gentile woman in labor because to do so would be to bring another heathen Gentile into the world. Okay? Right? And just so we're clear, this is a two-way street. Right? The Gentiles did not think highly of the Jews either. Right? This is a, so it's a, they reciprocated uh, the same sort of attitude towards the Jewish people. Right? So we're talking like deep division, deep disdain towards like these two people groups that just so happen to be the two people groups that make up the church in Ephesus. Okay? So while like you might worship next to someone who voted differently than you, right, the, the church in Ephesus would be like, well, that's cute. Because I worship next to a guy that my parents taught me was created just to make hell hotter. Like that's a different kind of division. That's a different kind of, of disagreement. And like if that's the way you feel about people who vote differently than you, then like you've got whole other issues, okay? Now, there was not as much laughter as I thought, so maybe that hit a little, maybe that hit a little close to home. I don't know. Um, anyways, it's into that sort of like tension and disagreement and division and disdain towards one another that Paul uh, writes these words to the Ephesians. But before we get to that, I've got to give you some, some context to kind of figure out how we got here. Okay, how did the church in Ephesus arrive at this point? And we're going to begin back in the book of Genesis. I promise we'll get from Genesis to Ephesus really quickly, okay? Um, so back in Genesis chapter 12, God, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, it'll be on the screens here in just a minute. God appears to a man named Abram and he says these words. He says, go from your country and your kindred, like your people, and your father's house into the land that I will show you, verse two, and I will make of you a great nation. Okay, so that's exactly what God did. He takes Abram, Abram became 
Abraham. Abraham became Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Okay? I, listen, every time I mention Abraham, the same joke. That's all I got. Okay? All right, but, but from Abraham and his many sons came the nation of Israel. Right? And, and like this is the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people as you kind of read through the pages of the Old Testament. Right? So, so Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people. Uh, but they weren't the only nation in existence at that time. There were people who were not part of Israel. There were people who were not Jewish. Which means there were other peoples and, and nations and people groups that were not right, God's chosen people, right? And, and those people are what the Bible would refer to as Gentiles, okay? Basically, a Gentile is anybody that wasn't Jewish, which is you and me. We are Gentiles, all right? Now, maybe you're like, gosh, that didn't seem very fair that God would, like, choose this nation of people for himself, and, like, some people were on the outside looking in, and he's got his own little crew here, and, and uh, maybe you're like, Man, that's not fair, and you would be right. That's not fair at all, actually, but you don't want God to be fair. We talked about this last week. If God were fair, then he wouldn't choose anybody because there ain't any of us worth being chosen, all right? So, so God doesn't owe anything to anyone, so the fact that he would choose any group of people highlights his grace and his mercy towards people created in his image, all right? But what I also want you to see is when God announced his plan back in Genesis 12 to create a people for himself, Right? He included a little hint as to what the future would hold. Okay, So this is back in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 2 again. He says, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, catch this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, but God's plan as early as Genesis 12 was to work through Israel, the Jewish people, his chosen nation, right, to bring a blessing to people from every corner of the earth, right? every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, okay? all the families of the earth. So what we see as early as Genesis 12 is that even though God begins with like one man and creates a, a people, a nation from that man, he's already got a plan that this good news Right, this blessing is going to extend far beyond just the people of Israel. Okay, So then you fast forward to the New Testament. See, I told you we were going to get there quick. You fast forward to the New Testament. The first page of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the first name in that genealogy is Abraham. Good job, guys. Well done. All right. Abraham, right? So it's through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, that, that the Savior of the world is born. So you get Jesus, a Jewish man, perfectly fulfills God's law in the way that the nation of Israel failed to over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Jesus perfectly fulfills God's law. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He rises from the dead, and then he gives his disciples, his followers, these marching orders, Mark 16, verse 15. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So in other words, 
Jesus says to his disciples, hey, the gospel, the good, that's what good news, that's what the gospel means. The good news of my life, death, resurrection for the, for the forgiveness of sin is not just for the Jewish people. Right? It's not just for people who look like you. It's not just for people who sound like you. It's not just for people who think like you. It's not just for people who have the same background and shared experience as you. The gospel is good news for all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. It's good news for whosoever believes. Right? That's the good news of the gospels. But the disciples are like you and me in that they kind of gravitate towards people that are still like them. So the early pages of the book of Acts, Acts is basically the earliest days of the church. It's Jesus saying, hey, here's your marching orders. Good luck, I'm leaving, all right? And then he pieces out. And so from that point, the, the, the disciples, they kind of just sort of hang with the people who are like them. Earliest chapters of Acts talk about them. Yes, they go and they proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus, but they kind of do it around the temple and around Jerusalem where there's a lot of people that look and sound and share the same background and history as them. Okay? And then God does what God always does. He kind of like, gently nudges his people out and away from what's comfortable. Right? Sort of like a parent with an adult child in the basement that's like, hey, uh, you need to go. <laughs> he, he, uses, he uses this sort of rising persecution to send the disciples out and away from Jerusalem, from the temple, and it's there that they begin to share the gospel with Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, right? Just as God intended way back in Genesis 12, just as Jesus commanded before he ascended to heaven to be with the Father, okay? And yet even though God kind of forces their hand, they still get hung up. Okay, you fast forward a few chapters to Acts 15. Acts 15, you've got the story of some men who, who had been teaching other people, uh, Gentiles, that in order to become Christians, they had to become like the Jews. Okay, which meant, they said you have to follow all the laws that the Jews follow to, to be a Christian, which included circumcision. Right, so the early leaders of the church in Jerusalem had to send out a press release and were like, that's not how this works. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. You don't have to act like a Jew. You don't have to take on the custom of the Jews. You don't have to be circumcised, which was a sign for the Jews. It's an Old Testament thing. That's weird. We don't have time to get into all that this morning. Okay? They said, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. And I have to imagine that on that day, there's like a collective sigh of relief from a bunch of Gentile men. And they're like, all right, let's get baptized and join the church. All right? And so that's what happened. They, the church expands to the Gentiles. Okay? And then just a couple of chapters later, Acts 18 and 19, we covered this a few weeks ago, Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus and he begins preaching the gospel to both Jews and the synagogues, but eventually the Jews are like, we don't want to hear what you have to say. So Paul's like, fine, I'll go preach to people who will listen. And it goes into the, there's some of the more public settings and begins to reason with the Gentiles. Uh, and the church in Ephesus is formed from Jewish believers, from Gentile believers that both believe the good news that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sin and rose from the grave to prove he was more powerful than sin, hell, death, and the grave. So you got this like 
the church in Ephesus is like this amalgamation. Yes, that word is in my notes. Of, of like Jewish background, Gentile background, and here they are trying to figure out how to worship together as one church. And I would just imagine that because of the difference, there's a little conjecture here, but I would just imagine that, that maybe Paul got word after he left that maybe the people sort of started drifting back to their sides of the room. And so Paul writes these words, starting in, Verse 11, so Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. See, there's a reason I included that little reference in there. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right, so notice Paul is not trying to erase history here. This is not like revisionist history. This is Paul saying, hey, no, there was a time when you Gentiles were not part of God's chosen people. Like there was a time where, where you were on the outside looking in. There's a time where you were hopeless and separated from God. All right, but again, just like last week, if you, if you were here last week, we talked about kind of the first half of Ephesians 2 where, where Paul said, hey, you were, all of us were at one time dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked, but God made us alive. In the same way, right, Paul's also saying here like, hey, that's who you were, as Gentiles, but it's not who you are anymore, right? So what changed? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Look at the next verse, verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, so though these Gentiles were once separated, alienated, hopeless, far from God, They've now been brought near, part of God's chosen people because of their faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? So then Paul continues. Big chunk here, verse 14. It says, For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And here's what I love. I love the honesty of Paul here. I just love the honesty of the Bible, right? I didn't pull any punches. He's not pretending that there weren't real differences. He's not pretending that there weren't real hostilities. He's acknowledging that those were very real. That the tension between being a 
a Christian with a Jewish background and a Christian with a Gentile background, he's acknowledging these are very real tensions, very real hostilities. But what he's saying is that, listen, the, the solution to that, the solution that's where division and hostility is the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, because humanity's greatest problem supersedes, is greater than racial differences, ethnic differences, cultural differences, political differences, socioeconomic differences. Right? Humanity's single greatest problem is the problem of sin, period. And the only solution to the problem of sin is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's saying is that, is that the, the gospel's not only like vertical, it's not only like reconciling, recon, that's not even a word, it's not only reconciling you to your heavenly father, it's also reconciling you to one another. Okay? It's, not only does faith in Jesus reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God, it, it, it reconciles them to one another because at their deepest, most fundamental level, their greatest need has been satisfied through their faith in Jesus. All right, so while differences remain, right, Paul's not saying like, hey, forget your Jewish background. Paul's not saying, hey, forget your Gentile background. Differences remain. Right? Your, your background, your history, your experiences, they're still true, but those things take a back seat because they're not what's most important. Okay, the most important thing about you, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, is that it's what you have in common. Right? And that's your mutual salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says things like this in Galatians. Right? Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, which could also be translated Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying these distinctions no longer exist. He's just saying that they're not what's most important. They're not what's the truest thing about you. Okay, this is... Paul's point, if you jump down, or in verse 15, I guess we were technically already read it, he, he says that through his death and resurrection, he's creating for himself one new man, or some, your translation might say, one new humanity in the place of, of the two. So their, their identity was no longer, and I, I need you to catch this, their identity was no longer, I'm a Jewish Christian, or I'm a Gentile Christian. Their primary identity was now, no, I'm a Christian who happens to be from a Jewish background. I'm a Christian who happens to be from a Gentile background. Right? Th that's a big difference. It's a big difference between saying, I'm a Jewish Christian, from, to say, I'm a Christian who happens to be from a Gentile. Like that's, that's a very different thing. All right? And listen, this is still true some 2,000 years later. Okay? At, at the risk of getting myself into trouble in a military town. Okay? If you are a Christian, you are not an American Christian. 
you're first and foremost a Christian that happens to live in the United States of America. Okay? And, and man, praise God for that. America is awesome. Okay? Like It's not perfect, but it's still pretty awesome. There's a reason that people want to leave where they're at to come here. I got to be careful with that. We're getting close to the border. Talk on that. We have strong opinions on that. I'll leave that alone. All right? But here's what I want you to see. Is that in Christ's kingdom, there are really only two distinctions that are primary. Those who are in Jesus Christ and those who are not. Right? So, so to flesh that out in real life, here's, here's what it looks like in, in real life. I have more in common with my Christian neighbor who is a former Muslim black man from Ghana. I have more in common with him than I have with my neighbor on the other side who is a white military veteran from upstate New York who shares my love for football. I have more in common with my Christian neighbor. So, from there, Paul goes on to say this in verse 19. Okay, here's what I want you to see. Notice the language he uses. It's language of belonging. Like we belong to one another. Here's what he says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's two metaphors that God uses to talk about this because of their mutual faith in Jesus Christ, who they are now. He uses the two metaphors, citizenship and family. Okay, both of those things communicate that the Gentiles who were once alienated, separated, cut off, far off, hopeless, without God, now they belong. Okay, and, and they're not less than. It's not like the Jewish people are here and the Gentile people are like, hey, you're with us, but you're not really with us. You're, I mean, like, you're here. You're... No, this is... Paul saying, like, no, you, you belong. You're not inferior. You're not a second-class citizen. You're not a stepchild. No offense if you're a stepchild. Right? You belong here. You're part of this thing. Right? You are fellow citizens and you are family, which means that they had all the same rights, all the same privileges, full access to the same inheritance that was once promised to the Jewish people. He said, you belong here. We are together. Right? Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles, though you were once hopeless, cut off, far from God, you've got a seat at the table. So come on. Right? And then, last thing I want you to see. I was supposed to cover the first half of chapter 3 in this sermon. Uh, you're going to get one verse. All right? If you were to read chapter 3, here's what you'd see. is Paul goes on and he talks about this mystery. 
that, that once was hidden, but now it's been revealed. Okay, and, and he says it flat out. The mystery is this, that, that the Gentiles and the Jews, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, were members of the same body, united in Jesus Christ, because of their belief in his life, death, resurrection. Okay, so that's the mystery. It's not a mystery anymore. Right? That's, that was the mystery once hidden, now revealed. But if you skip down to verse 10, Paul gives the why. Right? Why would God create one new man or one new humanity uh, where there was once division and hostility? Like, why would God, why would God bring together people who, who once like, thought very, very poorly of one another? And here's the why in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has a specific plan for his church as a gathering of people from different backgrounds, different stories, things that make us different all together in one family, right? Citizens of the same kingdom, members of the same family. Okay, and I, that word manifold there is, is interesting. Okay, if you circle that. Um, I don't know what comes to mind. When you think manifold, I think of car parts. That's not what this is. Okay, the word manifold here in the original language, uh, the, the word that's translated manifold is, uh, it, it's kind of a, like a, an artistic word, like a poetic word. And it, it gives off this idea of something that's multifaceted or multicolored, um, intricate, does I say that word? Intricate, complex. Okay, it's the same word that in the, um, uh, in the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, that same word was used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. All right, so we're talking like diversity here. So here's what Paul's saying. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known that it's the diversity of the church across a variety of spectrums that actually points to the reality that Jesus is central and that Jesus is the cornerstone. When people from different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, different political persuasions, different cultural expressions, when a diversity of people gather together in the local church, Right, what we're declaring both to the seen world around us, but also, according to Paul, to the unseen world, is that Jesus is more important, more central, more foundational than all these things that make us different. Right, so, that was the church in Ephesus. What about if we leave Ephesus and we show up at 6746 South Wilson Road? If you're geographically challenged, that's here. That's what I'm referring to, okay? Because like, listen, not a lot of Jewish Gentile background here, right? We're all Gentiles, okay? So what, what do we do with this? What, like, what does this mean for us as a local church? Here's what I got. I'm gonna give you one big takeaway and then I'm gonna give you hopefully a vision for the future, okay? Like a vision, like a, from the Bible vision, not like something that might weird you out vision. Okay. I got to stick to my notes. So I'm going to get in trouble. Okay. Here's the big idea. Unity in the church 
does not mean uniformity in the church. I'm going to say it again. Uni- I'll put it on the computer. I forgot. You guys can see it anyways. Unity in the church does not mean uniformity in the church. A church is not united just because we all look, sound, vote the same. That is not what makes a church united. A church is united when we agree that Jesus is central, that Jesus is the cornerstone that we're striving to build both this church and our individual lives on, and that together, despite our differences, we are moving forward in what Jesus has commanded to, what he said back in Mark 16, to go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to share Jesus with people from different races, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, political persuasions, socioeconomic levels, and every other area where society is trying to disciple you to draw lines between us and them. The only dividing line that, that matters in the kingdom of God is the line between believers and unbelievers. And, and our job is to pull as many people as we can across that line. That's what makes a church united. Okay? And so let me give you, I told you I was give you a, a future vision of this. Okay, it's actually not my vision. This is John's vision in Revelation 7. Okay, here's, he gives us a glimpse into what heaven's going to be like. And here's what he says. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's the way I've said it before. I'm just going to keep saying it. You're going to spend eternity, Christian, if you're a Christian, you're going to spend eternity worshiping next to people who are a lot different from you. That's God's good design. You're going to spend a lot of time. Listen, if you just look at the demographics of the world, most of us are probably going to be the minority in heaven. That's God's future vision. And so, so my prayer, and really like my prayer this week, my hope for our church is that we would get some practice in on this side of eternity. That's what I really hope. Okay, that, that, that the Lord, like I've, I've, I've literally made it, it's a prayer in my Bible this week on a sticky note, that, that God would make this church in time, it doesn't happen overnight, we all got areas to grow and learn, that God would make this church like a little, a little microcosm expression of that future reality in the place and space that he's put us. That's what I hope. Right? That, the, that the diversity of this present day gathering across a variety of spectrums would begin to reflect the diversity of the community that he has 
put us in. And just so you like, I, I don't know how you think about our community. I came from Somerset, which was not a very diverse community. Uh, there's some diversity here. Okay? Like I substitute in the local schools, even to like, like across a variety of spectrums, racially, ethnic, socioeconomic. This is a diverse community. And, and to give you some stats, I'm going way off notes here. <laughs> I'll, step, I'll step over here so that you know like this is just me talking, not the Bible. Um, like this, the most recent census would tell you that this little plot of area that, that this church is set down right in the middle of is one of the more increasingly diverse areas of our community. Again, across a variety of spectrums. All right, so my hope is that this place would begin to reflect that future reality here and now. Right, that this would be a place where racial, ethnic minorities feel like they're a part of our family. That this would be a place where the man or woman with a six-digit salary is in the same small group as the single parent who doesn't know how they're going to pay rent next month. Right, that this would be a place where, where the man or woman with maybe a little more of a charismatic bent worships right next to a good Baptist that's scared to take your hands out of your pockets. Right? <laughs> that this would be a place where the struggling addict worships next to the woman who's never had so much as a speeding ticket in her life. That this would be a place where opposite sides of the political aisle can remind one another that our hope is not in a presidential candidate, but in a risen Savior. Like, my hope and my prayer is that all of these things and more would become normal here. And that through this church, I'm not talking like ethereal, like through the church, I mean through this church, that the multifaceted, excuse me, that was uncomfortable, multicolored, complex, intricate, diverse, manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the watching world around us. That's my prayer for our church. Would you pray with me? Father, um, as we conclude, I just think, first and foremost, Lord, thank you that you saw fit to, in your eternal plan to to fold a bunch of us Gentiles into your chosen people. As we've talked about the last few weeks, there's not a one of us that deserves it. And so we thank you for your mercy and grace in moving towards us. Or that back, way back in the book of Genesis, that you already had a plan that you were going to unfold in your own time to, to be a blessing to all the peoples, all the nations, all the families of the world. So, so Father, I praise you for that. We talked about your goodness earlier, that evidence of your goodness, that you would be a, a God who, who loves all peoples and desires for all peoples to come to a knowledge of who you are and repent and be saved, and we praise you for that. And Father, my prayer is that, that this church would begin to look a little bit more like uh, this sort of 
picture of your eternal kingdom. Lord, a, a place where people from different backgrounds, different life experiences, different sort of cultural contexts, different tax brackets would, would come here to worship you because we all believe, regardless of our, our stories and our histories and our backgrounds and our circumstances, because we believe that, that you died on the cross for our sins, that you rose from the grave and that you've given us a great task to go and tell the world the same news. And so Father, I, I just pray that, that the citizens of this kingdom, like this local church, citizens of your kingdom, that we would increasingly live in such a way that the citizens of our community and the unique diversities of our community and the unique complexities and intricacies of our community would be seen here in this gathering. So Father, we need your help to do that. We need, we need you and your spirit to be at work to do that. And so we're just asking that you would bring that to fruition. Would help us to know what's our part in that and to trust you to do your part. But Father, I, I pray, I pray that, that this local gathering of fellow citizens and family members would reflect to the watching world and all our diversities and complexities and intricacies that we would reflect your manifold wisdom. So Father, would you make this true of us in your good timing? We love you. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.